Hello, and welcome back to Global Citizen, a podcast from Glimpse from the Globe, a leading digital foreign affairs publication out of the University of Southern California. In this episode, we are here to introduce you to another amazing international relations professional here in our first series, The Professor Profiles. I am Taya Heisel, and I'm joined by, as always, Glimpse podcast director, Cameron Melillo. Cameron, how you doing? Hey, Taya. I'm happy to be back for the fifth and final episode of The Professor Profiles. We've definitely noticed our growth as podcasters throughout the making of these podcasts, and we're excited to wrap it up today with another amazing professor who also happens to be Glimpse's faculty advisor. Yes, I'm very excited for this episode as well. And our guest today is Professor Pamela Starr, who, as you said, just so happens to be Glimpse from the Globe's faculty advisor. Professor Starr graduated summa cum laude from Cal State Northridge with her bachelor's in political science before continuing on to get a master's from Tulane in Latin American studies and a PhD from USC in the POIR department. She has worked as an analyst, a consultant, an advisor, and a professor in the world of Latin American policy and economics. And at USC, she teaches courses in U.S. Mexico relations and Latin American political economy. Professor Starr, thank you so much for being on the show and it's awesome. It's an honor to speak with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Now we're looking forward to chatting with Professor Starr about her experiences in foreign policy, her expertise in U.S.-Mexico relations, and so much more. But first, as our listeners should know by now, the first question we ask our guests is always a little bit different. Now, Professor Starr, you're one of the top experts at USC on Latin American affairs and political economy, and you're an invaluable member of the USC Political School and International Relations faculty. So it's only right that we ask you, what's your prediction for the upcoming USC football season? <laughs> Sadly, I'm no longer much of a USC football fan. I was raised on USC football, went to a lot of USC football games uh, when I was in high school and college, um, being from Los Angeles. But in my heart of hearts, I am a baseball fan. Um, so I'm a huge Dodgers fan going to the game tonight. I um, have sort of pseudo season tickets. So we're gonna be going to a lot of games the next few weeks. And I'm very excited for the Dodgers. So unfortunately, not as big a fan of USC football. <laughs> yeah, go blue. I'm happy that we got Max Scherzer and hopefully, uh, hopefully we go back to back. That's the goal. Yeah, that is it. I am um, not a football or a baseball fan, but you know they're both they're both fun to watch on occasion. Um, I I'll just say for this for the sake of this episode, go Dodgers. Um, I don't actually. I think uh, the Mariners, my hometown, Seattle, might be a little bit mad at me for that, but um, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, for that sports insight. We appreciate it. Um, we generally, we like to start podcasts by learning a little bit of background about you and your career. So what made you want to pursue international relations and more specifically an international relations career focused in Latin America? Um, it started when I was in junior high and high school. I've always been interested in U.S. foreign policy. I had debates at the dinner table with my father about U.S. foreign policy. He was a bit more conservative than I was at the time. Um, and the United States was involved in the Central American Civil Wars. So I got interested in Central America as a result of that. So while I was in high school, I studied Spanish thinking that Latin America might be what I wanted to do. In college, I wanted to uh, actually learn to speak Spanish, which meant a study abroad program. And my university had three choices. I could go to Spain, which didn't make sense since my interest was really was Latin America. I could have gone to Peru, which seemed a little far away. So I ended up going to uh, Mexico, which was the other option. 
and like a very good nerd, um, I got there and fell in love with the economics and the politics while all of my friends were loving the food and the music and the, and the partying. I just had my nose in books. I found the place fascinating and I've been fascinated by it to, to the present day. And that's great. I think there's, you know, a lot of people fall in, in love with countries and their areas of expertise in different ways. You know, some people get really buried in the political economy. And for some people, it's it's the culture and the people that really, you know, is their first, you know, instinct, first love. So uh, now we wanted to talk about uh, after you got your PhD at the University of Southern California, you spent nine years in the late 90s and early 2000s as an international relations teacher and researcher at ITAM, which is a prominent university in Mexico City. So how was that experience for you and how did it help you become a better professor when you started teaching later at USC? Teaching in Itam was an amazing experience. Um, I actually went to Mexico um, for a year. I was, a I was trying to look for a job in the United States. Something came up in Mexico City. I thought, well, I'm interested in Mexico. I'm bilingual, why not? Um, but I fell in love with Itam and I, that's why I stayed for nine years. Um, it's a small liberal arts college um, in Mexico City, and it um, is one that allows for a lot of opportunity for research, which is exactly the profile of, of university I was looking for. I love teaching, but I also love the research. Um, and I think what really made me um, a better researcher and professor was being at Itam. Um, there were a lot of opportunities that came my way because I was actually in Mexico studying Mexico. Um, a lot of opportunities for consulting, but a lot of opportunities for research and writing, and also an opportunity to be um, a female professor in a, a male-dominated culture, which um, uh, was a great learning experience for me because it's not unique to Mexico. It's been very helpful for me at, at USC as well. But having that experience of students telling me how important it was to see a woman in a position of, of influence and a, an important professional position was very important for their understanding of what women were capable of doing, both the female students and the male students. How do you think your experience at ETAM compared to USC? ETAM is different because Mexico is different, the culture is different. So the students um, come with a different attitude. Um, at USC, getting the students to participate in class discussions is super easy. The students are used to it. You've been doing it all and working in groups your entire um, high school university education. Mexico is a much more hierarchical culture. And so the teacher is much more the authority figure. In fact, um, teachers are referred to as maestra and maestro. There's an actual title that goes with being an instructor in, in Mexico or profesora if you're at the university. And so it was harder to get students to begin to participate and, um, and, and particularly to disagree with the professor, um, which is again not at all hard at USC, but it was difficult um, to get that going in Mexico. And it was very rewarding to getting, getting them to do so. Yeah, I think um, the experience that you talked about before having students see a woman in a, in a position of influence, I think that that power really transcends. I know as a woman, when I see female professors, like I, I 
I appreciate it, especially wanting to go into international relations myself. I think it's it's awesome. Um, and yes, the the speaking up in in discussions. I know I had taught a summer class this summer, and just trying to get my kids to to talk more and to have discussions. It's it's it can be really rewarding when when it actually happens. So I really appreciate that. Um, so after your time at Itam, you spent about two years as an, a Latin American analyst for the Eurasia Group. Um, so what was that experience like, and what was the best and the worst part of that job? It was an incredibly rewarding experience. Eurasia Group is a wonderful place to work. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to be a Mexico specialist all day, every day. Weirdly, in Mexico is still very much a nationalist culture. So having an American be a Mexico specialist at a university was difficult. Um, most Mexicans weren't open to it initially. Um, and so I ended up doing a lot of work on Argentina. I did a project on dollarization in Latin America, but I didn't do that much research and writing on Mexico, even though it was my first love academically. Um, and Eurasia Group gave me the opportunity to really dig into Mexico and to dig into issues that I hadn't spent time on before, looking specifically, for example, the security situation in Mexico, which is very important to some of our clients. Um, and I think the best thing about working at Eurasia Group was that, plus the fact that I was working with a lot of other nerdy PhDs um, and we all got along and it was just a wonderful collegial environment. Um, the most difficult thing for me was not teaching. I did teach courses at Georgetown while I was at a Eurasia Group, but I wasn't teaching full time. And I sort of had the sense of, I was making money for myself, for the company, for the clients, but I wasn't really doing anything positive to change the world. Um, and I missed that. And so when the opportunity came to go back in academia, I jumped. It seems like a lot of the professors we've talked to so far have talked about, you know, the the impact you can have in academia and the control you have over what you're doing. And I think for a lot of people, that's, you know, more rewarding and, and you can get more out of that than necessarily working for, you know, a large organization, whether that's the Eurasia Group, the State Department, et cetera. So another thing we wanted to talk about was as part of your career in 2009, you also had the opportunity to, I believe, brief Hillary Clinton, who was at that time Secretary of State. So a couple questions from that. Firstly, how does that opportunity come about? And what was it like briefing who many would consider one of the biggest members of Global, of the global foreign policy sphere, especially at the time and considering the circumstances given, I believe it was her first official visit to Mexico as Secretary of State. Um, I was able to get that opportunity in part because obviously I'm a Mexico specialist and a specialist on US-Mexico relations, but it also had to do with my network. And it's one of the things that I always talk to my students about whether here or in Mexico, the networks, building networks is one of the most important things you can do during your time at university. Um, and it happened to be that uh, a woman I had known since her time um, at uh, working at the Mexico desk in the State Department as a Mexico specialist, at the time was the Assistant Secretary of State for Latin American Affairs. And she recommended me to the secretary. Um, so I was able to, I was actually in Mexico at the time on a research trip. So I interrupted my research trip to fly to Washington um, to brief the secretary. It was an amazing opportunity. She is very easy to get to know. I, a lot of people say that she's cold and sometimes that seems to be the case when she's doing formal speeches, but one-on-one -on -one, she's very warm, easy to get to know, um, uh, was very appreciative um, that, that I had flown up for this meeting. Um, it wasn't just myself. There were several other people who were briefing her at the same time. Um, and what I noticed about her was that she was taking notes on uh, the comments that people were making 
and she only wrote down the smart stuff. There were a lot of comments that weren't that useful to her. They were comments that academics tend to talk about their research as opposed to how it's relevant to policymakers. And she differentiated between the two and wrote down the stuff that was really smart. I was lucky enough to have been seated right next to her. So I was able to, to gather all of that. Um, it was a marvelous opportunity. And it was also, um, it made me think very highly of her as someone who, um, uh, before her first trip to Mexico, actually had this a meeting where she pulled together a lot of experts on Mexico to try to distill um, uh, knowledge that would help her on her trip. And she did this with, um, apparently with all of her first trips as secretary, she pulled together a group of specialists to help uh, her learn about the, the situation and the country she was visiting. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot we can take away from that. One, the importance of networking. Uh, I know that we're in international relations. A lot of people tend to think of networking more for business or finance, but I think networking is just as important, if not more important in international relations. It's critical to getting opportunities, jobs, whether you're in academia or you're working for a big government organization. And then secondly, another, another interesting thing I noticed is you talked about Professor Clinton. Hey guys, it's Cameron here. Just wanted to make something real clear. It's not Professor Clinton. I think everyone knows that, but just in case, it's Secretary of State Clinton, Democratic presidential nominee Clinton, silver medalist in the 2016 election Clinton. So that's who it is, not Professor Clinton. Thank you for your time. And we'll head right back into the episode. How she was, you know, what was it? What you found fascinating was that she had all these people uh, briefing her before her first trips. I would have, I guess maybe this is a question you may or may not know, but wouldn't that be standard for uh, most foreign sec like most foreign secretary of states, or have you noticed that that's not really the case um, throughout American history? If that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, personally aware of exactly how different secretaries prepare themselves for for foreign trips. However, my understanding is what they do is they rely on the State Department, which there's nothing wrong with that. The State Department has enormous riches in knowledge about um, all the countries of the world. What she wanted was to get um, opinions beyond the State Department. And that was, I'm not sure if it's unique, but it's not standard operating procedure. All right, that, I get, that answers my question. And I think hopefully that's going to be around the state because the State Department is great and you know they have a lot of information, but there's also experts out there who can really help you in, in terms of diplomacy and other stuff. So that's great. So we're gonna move on to the next section here. And we wanted to ask you about some of your areas of your policy expertise starting with the Mexican economy. So in 2020, Mexico's GDP was hit hard by the pandemic, contracting an astounding 8.2%, the single largest drop since 1932. On a country-wide scale, with growth already uneven due to a variety of factors, what actions can President López Obrador and the Mexican government take in order to move closer to long-term and relatively stable economic growth for Mexico? Um, it's complicated, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, and I'm in a peculiar position because the current finance minister is a close friend of mine. So I don't wanna be uh, criticizing his policy choices necessarily um, in a public forum. Um, but that being said, um, the, the Mexican government um, uh, unfortunately has, from my perspective, has a different perspective on how to promote growth than um, I think would be most effective. Um, that being said, what I would do is offer um, uh, suggestions about what they could do within the context of what the president is willing to consider. 
Um, and one of the things the president has been doing is he hasn't, he didn't use a, um, a stimulus program like the United States did, arguing that Mexico couldn't afford it. I think that was a mistake, but it's not a position that he's going to change now. So I can't say he needs to, for example, have a stimulus package. He's simply not going to do that. But one of the things he can do is try to um, manage his rhetoric a little bit more carefully because he tends to say things that undermine the confidence of the private sector in Mexico. And it's the private sector that investment in Mexico that is going to be the driver of a renewal of economic growth that combined with Mexican exports to the United States through the USMCA. Um, and that combination is very important. So letting his foreign, his, his, his foreign minister and his treasury secretary speak for him, I think would be very beneficial at this point. So while this you know, economic situation is um, unfolding and shifting, um, there was also an election in Mexico. Uh, so what were the overall results of the June 6th midterm election in Mexico? And how do you see this election impacting US-Mexico relations? The election itself had a very mixed result. Um, it was sold by the opposition as a, um, a vote on, up a down vote on Lopez Obrador and the party supporting him. His party lost its two thirds majority in the lower house, managed to maintain a simple majority, um, but just barely. Um, they have, I think, 20, a 25 vote margin in the lower house um, uh, out of 500 uh, members. So it, he, he lost a lot in, in, on the legislative front. Um, he now lo no longer has the capacity to um, easily change the constitution if he wanted to do that. But at the same time, his party won the majority of governorships and uh, leg state legislat legislatures in the country. So they clearly were uh, demonstrated to be the strongest party in Mexico still, even though um, the uh, voters uh, showed that they were a little bit dissatisfied with the results from this um, uh, this administration, and particularly in Mexico City. Mexico City turned on this administration, and the vote in Mexico City was strongly against um, uh, the, the president, despite the fact that the, it had always been a bastion of support for this president and his party. So mixed in that sense. That being said, Mexico's political system under this president is hyper-presidentialist. Um, power is concentrated in the hands of the president. And he still has a significant majority in both houses of Congress. He still ha he now has uh, governors on his side that gives him a strong position from which to govern. So in dealing with Mexico, the United States really deals with the president. It's very different than Mexico's dealings with the United States that they have to consider what's going on in the US Congress, what's going on in the states, and sometimes what's going on with, with mayors in big cities. Um, in Mexico, we deal with the president. And he has policies that are irritating to the United States from time to time, not the least of which he's not a huge fan of the private sector. He's um, not a huge fan of, he is a huge fan of fossil fuels. Um, so he's uh, sort of running counter to President Biden's uh, climate change agenda. And he has a security policy that is not as effective as the United States would hope it would be. So there's a lot of irritants there. But that being said, he's cooperated enormously well with the Biden administration on dealing with Central American migration to the United States and also on um, the USMCA managing the bilateral economic relationship. So some irritants in a relationship that otherwise is going well. And so the midterm elections just were sort of a referendum on that. 
I mean, it's crazy to think about just five years ago what we thought about that the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship was going to happen when President Trump was inaugurated. And, you know, there was a lot of concern on both sides. But it seems like it's good that Lopez Obrador and Biden, the Biden administration, for the most part, have been able to work together. So next question we have for you, it's a little bit more of a fun one. Uh, it's a hypothetical. It's always my favorite question I get to ask professors. So Professor Starr, you're going to knock on your door one day. You open it up and there he is, current Mexican president, Lopez Obrador. You hear him shower you with praises about your work for the U.S.-Mexico network, your guest articles in the Wall Street Journal, and your extensive teaching career from ITAM to USC. And based on all of that, he wants you to have complete autonomous control of both foreign and domestic Mexican policy. Now you can enact any three policy changes you want. So what three policy changes are you going to end up enacting and why? I mean, I just have to start by saying this is a scenario that's likely not happen. Um, I might get a knock on the door from Lopez Obrador saying, gosh, you, you, you know so much about Mexico. But you know that op-ed you wrote in the Financial Times criticizing my energy policy? Yeah, I think you're totally wrong on that. Um, so, um, but that being said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna echo back to what I was saying previously, is if you were to ask my advice, um, what I would try to do is give advice that were, um, is something that is operational within his conception of how um, Mexico should be governed. So my first, as I would, I would again um, restate, which I've already stated, is that he needs to um, um, dial back the anti-private sector rhetoric. He also needs to dial back his broader attacks on the private sector. He's trying to, for example, increase tax collection significantly um, by getting the private sector to pay taxes, which they haven't done, um, which is a good thing for Mexico. But the rhetoric surrounding it is often um, interpreted in the private sector as a tax on them. So they're worried if it's going to be accompanied by other regulations that might make it harder for them to do business. So changing that rhetoric, I think, would be very important. The second thing I think he needs to rethink is security policy. Um, he has a security policy, which in many ways, when he initiated it, it was refreshing in Mexico because it was a security policy that for the first time focused on the needs of individual citizens, of their individual security in Mexico, looking at um, uh, poverty and how it plays into uh, crime in Mexico, and also um, working with um, um, some uh, private sector organizations and civil society organizations to improve the broader situation for um, individuals in Mexico. Um, that's what he promised. And unfortunately, what he's delivered is he's delivered on the efforts on the anti-poverty side, trying to provide um, opportunities for individuals um, who didn't work and didn't study and were considered vulnerable for um, uh, recruitment by organized crime in Mexico. But he hasn't coupled that with policies that's designed to weaken organized criminal groups in Mexico. He hasn't coupled it with really working with um, non-governmental organizations and private sector groups in big cities to create alternative opportunities for um, uh, Mexican youth. Um, so I think he needs to build on what he's done well on the security front and to couple it with the other um, actions that are needed to have a full, um, uh, run the full gamut of uh, tools that are needed to actually have a significant impact against organized crime in Mexico. And then the third one, I think, um, would be on the foreign policy front. Um, and it has to do with um, irritants in the US-Mexico relationship. 
Mexico, Lopez Obrador, as I mentioned before, is a very nationalistic uh, president. And he also is a president who wants Mexico to be less reliant on the United States. So in recent uh, weeks and months, he's done things like support Cuba, um, the Cuban government, um, despite when there was um, uh, uprisings against um, the government because of their um, difficulties with COVID, but also because of the economic situation in the country. There's not enough air conditioning, which makes people very unhappy in a very humid climate in the summer. Um, but also there's not a lot of job opportunities. The Cuban economy has also been slammed by COVID. Um, and so there's a lot of discontent in Cuba. Um, and instead of backing the Cuban people who are simply upset and want a, a, a better uh, um, um, opportunities um, and, and a better response from the government to deal with their economic situation, Lopez Obrador backed the revolutionary government of Cuba. He's also backing um, the, the left-leaning government in Bolivia um, very vocally. And he also has backed Maduro in Venezuela. Not backed him, but said that it's Venezuela's right to choose its government. All these things are irritating to the United States. And there's no need to irritate the United States unnecessarily. So I would encourage him to back off on that rhetoric because it doesn't benefit him. Um, and in what is the most important bilateral relationship he has, and he understands that, is the one with the United States. I hope that President Lopez Obrador comes knocking tomorrow. I hope that happens and he gets all of your amazing sage advice. Um, but for now, to, to move a little bit back to reality, um, talking about, you know, the U.S.-Mexican relationship, and um, the, I know you mentioned that Lopez Obrador does a lot of things to, to irritate the U.S., um, but... To talk about, let's talk about trade. Uh, so how do you, I know you briefly mentioned the USMCA earlier, um, but how do you see the USMCA or for our listeners, the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement and just North American trade more generally, how do you see that playing out in a post COVID economic recovery period? And will this new NAFTA be utilized to support all the partners or do you think trade under this framework won't necessarily be a high priority? I think that trade is always going to be a high priority for both countries because both countries have become dependent on it, Mexico in particular. Um, Lopez Obrador understands that. He was a huge opponent of NAFTA when it was originally negotiated and in the early years of the North American Free Trade Agreement. But once he became president, he realized that the Mexican economy um, is dependent on its trade relationship with the United States. It's not that Mexico is just dependent on exports, but the United States and Mexico produce things together. They trade inputs to the production process. This is particularly evident in the automotive sector, sector but we also see it in um, the pharmaceutical sector and other areas as well. Um, and that understanding means that Lopez Obrador has been a proponent of the renegotiation of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada, of the renegotiation of NAFTA, which became the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. So both sides are supportive of that. That being said, the bilateral relationship, I would argue, is running the risk of losing its focus on what, what is probably the most important element of the relationship, the, the economic relationship, because of the challenge of migration. Um, Joe Biden is, um, faces a huge political challenge, and he desperately needs Mexico's support on that front. They are working together positively on that front, but it, run, it was running the risk of overshadowing the economic relationship. Last week, um, Kamala Harris had a phone call with Lopez Obrador, 
and also um, Secretary Mayorkas and a number of other officials from the National Security Council went to Mexico and had meetings with the foreign minister and the president, and they agreed to reestablish um, a, um, an element of the bilateral relationship that's known as the high-level economic dialogue, which high-level officials um, that are important in the economic relationship meet um, about every six months to discuss what needs to be done to move the bilateral relationship forward. And one of the key um, uh, foci of this um, meeting, which will be on September 9th in Washington, is to think about the post-COVID economic relationship. How do we reopen the border, which is still closed um, to the movement of non-essential people and goods? And how do we um, effectively implement um, the new USMCA with its, its, its tweaks? They're just tweaks, but they're very important tweaks um, in how the bilateral economic relationship will be managed. So we'll definitely stay tuned to see how that how that meeting goes and how um, they want to center uh, post-COVID economic recovery. But to go back to something you mentioned in um, our little fun hypothetical question, you mentioned uh, a priority on security and personal security for the people of Mexico. So this is something I think you talked about with drug cartels in also an interview that you did for a Center for Strategic International Studies podcast about U.S.-Mexico relations about three years ago. Um, so in that podcast, in that interview, you mentioned how then-candidate Lopez Obrador provided a unique and, I quote, out-of-the-box perspective on how to deal with drug cartels and drug crime and security. Um, so since then, has Lopez Obrador implemented his out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to drug cartels and drug crime, and has it been effective? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I talked a bit about this previously, but let me elaborate on it a little bit more. Um, the Mexican strategy for dealing with organized crime before Lopez Obrador was focused on a, 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 a frontal assault using the military to um, fight fire with fire um, against organized crime and what they called the kingpin strategy, which is to take out the leaders of the organized crime groups in Mexico. That strategy failed. Um, it was insufficient and it was misguided. It was insufficient in that all it did was focus on the organized criminal groups themselves as opposed to focusing on what were the drivers of criminal activity in Mexico. Um, the things beyond um, just uh, policing and using the military to um, defeat the, the organized criminal organizations. Um, there wasn't a, 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 a parallel strategy to deal with the question of personal security, to deal with the question of individuals who um, were lost souls and didn't know what else to do and therefore were easy recruits for organized crime. And it wasn't giving them other opportunities of things that they could do. So those things were being underemphasized. There also wasn't enough emphasis on fighting poverty in Mexico. So what Lopez Obrador said was, I am no longer going to fight fire with fire. That has been a failure. What I want to do is focus on specifically fighting poverty because poverty causes crime. And while that for me was a refreshing out of the box approach to organized crime, he hasn't coupled it with the other things that are needed in order to have a complete strategy. You can't just ignore organized criminal groups and let them operate. You have to police them. And he has not been doing that. Um, and that's, uh, and he also hasn't brought in non-governmental groups, meaning NGOs as well as uh, private sector actors. And so he needs to um, do that to have a more a robust approach to organized crime in Mexico. 
So I kind of wanted to uh, expand on a certain part of this question. When I took your class, you talked a lot about U.S. demand being a big driver in the success of the Mexican cartels and Latin American in general. And until we get American demand under control, like they're always going to be around. People are going to find ways to smuggle drugs into Mexico, et cetera. So let's say Joe Biden's like, all right, I've had enough with this. You know what? If, if Mexico is just going to, you know, in all of Latin America, they're going to sell, sell drugs to our people. We might as well sell our own drugs to our own people. So he goes out and legalizes all these major drugs, heroin, cocaine, uh, methamphetamine, uh, fentanyl, you know, literally everything under the sun. And so a couple questions come from that. One, how costly would that be to cartels? Uh, would they still be able to operate? And two, if they weren't able to sell drugs for a profit, what would they target next? Would it be uh, human trafficking? Would it be precious metals? Uh, what do you see and why? If Joe Biden were to do that overnight, it would definitely have an impact on the bottom line for Mexican uh, criminal groups because they do make a lot of money um, from trafficking um, heroin and fentanyl in particular to the United States. Um, that being said, they adapted very neatly to the legalization of marijuana in most of the United States. Um, and the other thing is that one of the consequences of the um, way Mexico fought organized crime in the past was he um, broke up very large cartels and created smaller criminal groups, which um, some of them ended up being sort of a, a cog in the um, supply chain of, of, of uh, supplying drugs to the United States. Instead of controlling the whole uh, supply chain as the cartels used to do, they just control a portion of it, moving drugs through the state of Zacatecas, for example. Um, but that wasn't enough to make money. And also as uh, violence increased amongst the criminal groups, it became more expensive to protect yourself um, from other criminal groups and from the government as well. So there is a need for other sources of income. And so organized crime over the last decade has moved into many other lines of business. So they now do control almost all, if not all human trafficking in Mexico. There's no longer any mom and pop um, uh, uh, organizations that move migrants into the United States, which is what it used to be 30, 40 years ago. Um, I remember when I was at Eurasia Group, I was talking with some uh, people from the state of Zacatecas, which was one of the oldest migrant sending regions um, in Mexico. They've sent migrants to the United States since World War II. Um, and there was a concern about increased violence associated with um, the movement of migrants into the United States. And they said, that's not a problem we have because we have our people who, who, who will move our citizens into the United States. It was the same organizations they had worked with for generations. That's not true anymore. If you're a Zacatecan and you wanna to come to the United States, you have to um, operate through organized criminal groups. They already control a big chunk of um, uh, um, avocado production in the state of Michoacan. Um, and so they're moving and they're, they are into uh, um, stealing gasoline in large um, quantities and reselling it on the black market. So they've moved into other kinds of business as well as extortion and kidnapping, which are the headline issues. So I don't think you'd see a big change in organized crime in Mexico. They would continue doing what they're already doing and find new lines of business um, uh, beyond um, just um, uh, now extortion, kidnapping, agriculture, gasoline sales, et cetera. 
So just to follow up on that one more, one last policy question, um, you mentioned that they have been um, stealing gasoline in, in great quantities. Can you just elaborate on, on why that is, why there's such a big black market for, for gasoline in Mexico? Sure, um, gasoline's expensive, so you can sell it more cheaply if it's, if it's stolen, um, and therefore it's very lucrative. Um, and uh, they um, tap into the pipelines um, and steal the gasoline that way. Um, they also, um, it's be hard to do this without working with people in the National Petroleum Company. Um, so it, it's also a reflection of the problem of corruption that Mexico has to deal with. Um, people in the National Petroleum Company, um, um, let me step back. The way a pipeline works is you send through a particular product. So you send through diesel, you'll send through um, uh, high grade gasoline, you'll send through um, um, uh, gasoline that doesn't have lead in it, unleaded gasoline. And it goes in batches and then you have nothing in the pipeline in the next batch. So you have to know when the gasoline's coming through. Um, and so they get that information from somebody who's working in the petroleum company and, and then therefore they can tap on it. Um, they do it throughout the country. So it's really hard to, uh, to, to stop it. The Lopez Obrador early in his presidency declared war on this process of stealing gasoline. And he was able to reduce it for a time, but it's back. So moving now away from policy a little bit, we want to talk about your experience as a teacher more. Um, what is the most common misconception you see from students about the US-Mexico relationship? Uh, the most common misconception is people don't understand how important it is to the United States. There's no question that it is arguably the most important bilateral relationship the United States has. But because it's a relationship that generally operates without too much difficulty, people just don't um, uh, focus on it. We focus more on Russia or China or Iran um, and um, countries that seem more important because they're more important strategically in terms of strategic challenges, in terms of problems. Um, but there's no question that Mexico is much more important. It's, it's um, our, our, it's always our first, second, or third most important economic relationship, um, alternating with Canada and China. It is our most important strategic relationship. Um, we don't notice it because we have a friendly government in Mexico. But if we didn't have a friendly, stable government, it would be very disconcerting for the United States um, to have to deal with um, a um, potentially adversarial um, uh, government um, in Mexico. So because the relationship operates so well, we just don't notice it. And that's without a doubt the, the biggest misconception. Yeah, and I think a, and a lot of that might come from, you know, our, our teachings of American history, where we learn a lot about, you know, the Mexican-American War and our conflicts with Mexico. And we won't really learn about, you know, how we've grown as a bilateral partner to Mexico. So I think hopefully, maybe in the future, we'll talk about that more at a younger age so people will understand the importance. So the last question, as we wrap up the podcast, we want to ask you is we would love to leave our listeners with a piece of advice. From your time as an analyst, professor, and all around IR professional, what's one piece of advice you would give to an incoming or current IR students, uh, specifically ones who want to focus on foreign policy or the political economy of Latin American nations in Mexico? I'd say the most important thing is to prepare yourself take advantage of doors when they open. Um, and there are two key aspects to that. One is preparing yourself for the door that you want to open, so that you are prepared to be able to do a particular kind of job. Um, but you shouldn't be um, blind to opportunities from doors that open because you, you, you desperately want door A to open 
and door C opens. Um, be open to lots of different opportunities. You won't spend your life doing the same thing your entire life. You'll have different phases of your professional life. And don't be afraid to go down um, what might appear like a detour, but actually is a great opportunity for you. Um, in my case, that opportunity was Eurasia Group. I wasn't looking for it. It happened to pop into my life. Um, and it was one of the best experiences I had as a result. Um, and then finally, tied to that is your network. The network is what makes these opportunities pop up. Um, and you never know when a door is going to open, but that door is often going to be opened by somebody you met somewhere along the way, whether it's a professor, whether it's a, a, a fellow student, or it's somebody you meet on an internship. Um, keep those relationships going um, because that'll provide the opportunities. But yeah, don't ever ignore an open door. Take advantage of it and walk through it. You know, make sure to keep those doors open and keep up your relationships with professors. Uh, they're very easy to talk to at USC. Just go to their office hours. Uh, I know I actually haven't, so this is, sounds really hypocritical for me, but you should go because it's a very great way to know your professors, make connections, and I promise you, uh, I wish I had gone to Professor Starr's office hours when I took her class because it probably would have made it a lot easier. But thank I you. I emphasize that those office hours are just as useful on Zoom as they are face-to-face. -face. So we're now back to being face-to-face, -face, but if we get another outbreak of, of COVID that's unexpected, we may have to go back to Zoom, take advantage of it on Zoom as well because it's, it's equally um, um, uh, helpful and um, good at getting to know the, the, the individual, the professor that you're, you're talking with. Yes, exactly. Whether Zoom or in person, go. That's my, that's my piece of advice to international relations students. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, Professor Starr. Uh, I had a lot, of fun do a lot of fun today, and uh, I really enjoyed learning a lot about Mexico. I felt like I knew a lot, but, I, but every time like I go to your class or I, or I hear you speak, I learn so much more. So I really do appreciate you taking your time today and allowing us to ask you a few questions. It's my pleasure. And there's always more to learn, whether it's about Mexico or something else. We'll spend, you'll spend your whole lives learning. Um, you'll never know it all. And, and that, that's, that, I think, is also reassuring um, to know that there are always new uh, challenges, new opportunities out there throughout your whole life. Yeah, I think um, this podcast is definitely one of our greatest learning experiences. You know, it's not just networking, not just going to office hours, but invite your professors on to be on a podcast with you. Um, <laughs> it's a great opportunity and it's a great way to learn. Um, so thank you again, Professor Starr, for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And for everyone listening in, you can check out more information on some of the current events discussed here at the Glimpse from the Globe website. There's some great articles from the First 100 Days series about U.S.-Mexican relations and Mexican President Lopez Obrador. So please go check those out. We hope you enjoyed this final edition to the Professor Profiles here on Global Citizen, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with some more amazing content. So please be sure to stay tuned. Bye.